Welcome back to episode 20. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Lauren. And this is A Place in the Courtroom. Hey, I didn't forget the intro this time. No. (laughs) And we got to do a dance because we're back not in the same room again. We did. Yeah, we we had every effort yesterday of, or every, I guess, idea um, to try to record this last night, but Mm -hmm. that didn't work out. So No, because we we were busy doing crazy rabbit hole research for an upcoming episode. Yes. So I thought we would be ready to record that by now, but hopefully we're going to get some more information and we'll have that ready for you guys. And I'm excited about that episode. Yeah, that's going to be an exciting one. I mean, we even went to the extent of like buying a whiteboard to write everything out on once we get all the information because we needed that. And Lowe's has really cheap whiteboards, guys. Yes. It's just the the material, I guess you should say. It's not like a pretty whiteboard. It doesn't have the frame. But if you need one, you can get one. I want to say one was 96 inches long and by like 36 inches, I think. And it was something like $34. Super cheap. And like, if you're anything like us and have searched before to find like a giant whiteboard to purchase for like studying or whatever, they can be so expensive, like 200, 300 bucks. Yes. But if you literally just go get the raw materials, you can have one for much cheaper. So definitely little known fact. Yeah. We learned something last night. We did. We learned a lot. We did. Our stocking, our internet stocking went to a whole new level last night. The internet detective work. I like yes, to think of it. It as. was not stalking. It's yeah. detective work. It's detective work. It we're we're doing investigative journalism. Is that what we this are? Is? <gasps> Pretty wow. much. Okay. Well, That's... keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. We are going to be covering a case that is it's a cold case. And so that mm-hmm. is definitely something you're gonna want to tune into because maybe you can help us piece together some additional information and maybe we can uh, get some closure. Yes. I think that will I'm excited to see what what we can find and then hopefully as more information comes out as the law enforcement keeps investigating hopefully the family will have closure. Absolutely. So today we have a little bit of a special episode. This was not something that we planned to talk about, um, but we thought that it was important because we've been like having conversations about it all week. And I'm like, this could actually be a podcast episode with the amount yes. of research that we are doing and some of just the interesting legal uh, conversations that we've had about this. So today we wanted to bring you a special episode about the Titan submersible that uh, unfortunately imploded just about um, earlier this week, just about a week ago, and just kind of discuss not what happened exactly, because of course, this did just happen. It was a tragedy. And that is still something that is ongoing as an investigation. They're not sure what happened. New information is coming out all the time. But we really just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about some of the um, interesting legal questions that have been raised so far. And just kind of generally about this idea of extreme tourism, and some of the legal implications for that. Yeah, so I think Like you said, we've had so many conversations about it this week with so many different legal concepts that we realized that we should quit texting each other this information and maybe actually have a conversation (laughs) on here Um, and that it might be something that our listeners are interested in as well. Yeah. So um, as we know, it was on June 18th of this year, just like I said a week ago, that five people went down in the Titan submersible, uh, one of which was the CEO of Ocean Gate Expeditions, which is the company that um, was responsible for this expedition that had built this submersible that went down. Um, Stockton Rush is the CEO of that company, and he was one that was also um, that was on this expedition. And so we wanted to talk about just some initial thoughts, like what we were thinking as this information was coming out. We know that it was $250,000 per ticket for people that were going to be getting on board. And the goal of this expedition was that they would be able to take a few hours, go down to the site of the Titanic, um, the Titanic's final resting place. So it was 
not a usual um, tourist uh, activity. I mean, I've been on a lot of vacations. I've never paid $250,000 for any kind of tour. But um, I mean, certainly a a very unique opportunity that people were willing to pay for. Definitely. Um, I think it's something that not a lot of people will ever have a chance, you know, to spend essentially what used to be a small house or a starter house. Um, you know, you could get a decent family home for 250,000 and in some parts of the country, you still can California, possibly maybe not. Um, but Maybe a studio apartment. <laughs> right. But it's essentially the price of a house to spend on this trip that I think the prep was a couple days, but the tour mm-hmm. itself was supposed to last, I think, what, a total of 12 hours was the idea? Something like that. Yeah. Eight to 12 hours or something. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely not the everyday tourism or the one where it's, you know, you go under the little submarine <laughs> At like Hawaii has them, Catalina Island has them, where you go down with a bunch of other people, drive around, and then come back up, and the next tour immediately comes back on. It's very different than that type of tourism. Yeah. And something that is very interesting, and I think caught a lot of people's attention right at the outset. So when first what had happened a few, maybe it was like an hour and a half into the descent into their tour, they lost communications with the surface. And there was some time that went by. And then an investigation started to figure out what had happened to them. So in the following days, there was this rush to figure out, are they stuck at the bottom? Did they make it to the Titanic wreckage? Um, Did something else happen? Are they back up on the surface and they need to get located? And there was this huge um, rush to attempt to rescue these people because there was a very limited amount of oxygen and there was just an estimate that they would have, I think it was about like four days worth of oxygen in a best case scenario to survive. And so there was definitely an urgency to locate them. Um, and as that investigation was ongoing, a lot of people were talking on social media about the incident and um, kind of giving their perspective. And information came to light that there were previous issues um that had been raised with OceanGate, this company that was putting on this expedition, and people had expressed concerns about the design of this submersible and the concerns of actually bringing people underwater to such a significant depth because there were experts that spoke out and that they believed that it was not safe to do that because it wouldn't be able to withstand the pressure at that level. And so... That definitely raised some concerns. We are not experts. I mean, I think a lot of people feel like experts a little bit after if you've been on social media this week. I've learned a lot more about being underwater and the way that these things work than ever before. Mm -hmm. So, um, but definitely not an expert. So we'll not claim to be an expert, but lots of people had things to say on social media. Well, I think it was interesting at first. I think you know, when it, when it first started happening and they said, okay, they lost the communication within the first, you know, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, it seemed like people weren't necessarily panicking yet because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it happened before. Like sometimes this yeah. happens and we just continue going down to 13,000 feet below the ocean, but we can't talk to anyone and it's totally fine. Right. Like when I first heard that, I was like, okay, so this just happens. And so you're like, oh, it's fine. Okay. But mm, is it sketchy? mm, Yeah. If it happens, then every single time you send someone to go figure out what's going on. And hopefully every time you find that it's fine. But what about when something like this happens? Right. And then the I know I saw a video and they were talking about, I think it was a news anchor who had gone down previously. Mm-hmm. or at least had had gone and interviewed them. And the idea was that Ocean Gate had, I think it was seven backup mechanisms to try to yes. get it to the surface. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, even some of them are very basic and require no human intervention. So even if everyone's passed out, it should still come to the surface. Yes, there was all these mechanisms in place that if something went wrong, that it would be able to come back to the surface. Right. So I think in the beginning, at least, it didn't seem as, I guess, frantic of a search. 
Yeah, in the in those first hours, definitely, because I think that from what I saw, there was a, t- a lapse in time between when they lost right. con- contact with them and then when they were finally like, we should maybe they probably, should be here. Yeah, we should probably do something and see what's going on. That's crazy. Yeah, but so there are a few legal questions that kind of came up that we kind of started discussing um, because so there was a previous lawsuit against Ocean Gate or it's actually ongoing and mm-hmm. a former employee of Ocean Gate had warned other um, employees of Ocean Gate and some of the high ups about the dangers of what it was that Ocean Gate was doing, specifically with the Titan submersible. And that person filed a lawsuit for wrongful termination, um, alleging that because of the concerns that were raised about the construction of the submersible, then there were there was some backlash and then they were fired as a result of that. Yeah, they're essentially a whistleblower. Um, it sounded like the employee had concerns about the carbon hole. And I think probably some of the were sourcing materials from either old materials. Like I think one was like part of an old scaffolding set was one of the Mm -hmm. metal supports within uh, the submersible. And then stuff was getting, you know, picked up from like camping world. Yeah. RV world or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So not, I mean, sometimes I get it, right? Like you pick things up from here, you pick things up from there, and maybe it works. Maybe that is sufficient. But it's sufficient when you have a camper on the Earth's surface and you're driving it around. Yes. Not when you are going that far down into the ocean where there is a ton of pressure on top. Right. So, I mean, this employee, it sounds like he raised his concerns and essentially they fired him and gave him 10 minutes to leave the premises. Yeah. And he wasn't the only one to raise concerns. There were other, there were numerous people who had reached out with their concerns about sending this down because of the materials that had been used. Um, They had concerns about using it for, um, you know, tourist purposes, essentially bringing people down there. And my understanding is that they signed a waiver, allegedly, the people who got on this um, signed a waiver saying that they understood all of this. But that raises kind of an interesting legal question because I know lots of people are familiar with signing waivers and um, that's something that probably everyone listening to this has done at some point in their life. And so some people I know were talking on social media about how, well, they signed a waiver. So what does that mean for any possible you know, lawsuits that could come of this and how does that change things? Yeah. So I know we've seen other articles where even the waiver even includes, you know, information that it's not, this vessel has not been approved or certified by any sort of, um, like regulating regulating entity. Yeah. Right. And so it's kind of, it's this untested experimental, type thing um so typically waivers waivers is essentially it's part of an assumption of risk argument um and i mean obviously one one bigger issue here is what area or what um, jurisdiction is going to be home for any sort of lawsuits this happened in international waters so it's not even within united states waters um you have the state where the company was was based that could be home to some of these lawsuits so really each state is going to have different laws related to primary assumption of risk and waivers but typically um you know, you sign a waiver at a trampoline park, you sign them if you're going to go skiing, really anything like that. Sometimes even just purchasing your ticket is enough to be considered a waiver. Um, and it's in really fine print on the back of like a baseball ticket. So when you sign these waivers, uh, they, when you read them, they seem like they are, you know, you're waving around, you're waving away all your rights for any sort of lawsuit, no matter what happens. And really that's not the case. Typically, the rule is you um, are waiving away your right to sue for the entity's negligence. Um, But if it starts amounting to gross negligence, where it's, you know, completely against industry standards or it's a violation of 
like a safety rule or it's really the disregard for human life. When you start getting to stuff at that level, that's typically where the waiver, you cannot waive that. So there's an argument at least here that this is gross negligence. Um, I know one issue I raised with you is typically we, when we do a negligence analysis, right, we talk about standard of care. What would a reasonably prudent person do? Um, sometimes there's industry standards. If you're talking about different sports, usually there is some sort of industry standard. I don't know what your industry standard is here. Yeah. There's not really anything else like it. Mm-hmm. Unless do you apply whatever regulating body who I guess would typically approve this type of submersible, do you apply those standards? Yeah, but then like you said, with the jurisdictional issue, and we you know, we've talked about jurisdiction on previous episodes, but that really is like Lindsay said, that this is you know, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, that's going to influence you know, what laws apply, what regulating entities actually matter. And so yeah, that I mean, that's an interesting point because I would think that it would be the typical, you know, who would have approved this before. But I mean, considering that they didn't go through that process, it's hard to know, at least right now, what that entity should have been. I mean, I do think it's interesting. We have, I, I think the case is getting stronger for gross negligence. The more information that's coming out where we have you know, many scientists who have written against them being allowed to do this. You know, they've written letters in opposition of what, what OceanGate was doing. We have the prior employees who are saying we're raising these issues. Um, and, you know, really what the employees and everybody have warned about is what we think happened here, where essentially the, at least the leading theory right now is that there was an implosion. Um, mm-hmm. And the Navy finally came out and said that they'd they documented or I guess found or heard a sound around that hour and a half hour and 45 minutes down on Sunday. They just didn't really want to brush that off and say, Oh, you know, we've lost everybody. We're going to quit looking is Mm -hmm. at least what they came out and said. Uh, So, I mean, it, it so far seems to be what happened seems to be what, these experts were warning about Mm -hmm. and when we're talking about like it like kind of building a case of negligence or gross negligence what's really important is what was known and then what was done anyway so in this instance we have numerous repeated attempts at least according to you know the information out there right now numerous attempts that came out of people trying to warn them so i would imagine that it would be kind of difficult for them to make an argument that they didn't know that you know ocean gate didn't know that this was possibly unsafe um because i mean they had numerous experts in this area telling them that this was dangerous another interesting thing too is it there was a report that i think the prior three attempts to do this dive had been canceled because of concerns of the the whole structural um integrity yes and so, I mean, you three, you try three times. It's going to be interesting to see what, what did they change or what edits did they make between those different concerns? Like, is it we try on one day and we just think, oh no, the pressure's too high? Or were they making changes between one and two and then two and three and then three and now four? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What did they do? Any sort of testing? What did they do? Yeah. And it's interesting also, like, what were those issues previously, right? Like, was it related to the exact same thing that ultimately ended up happening? Was it something else? Like, that's all information that's going to be important also. Another article that I saw mentioned that some of the experts had concerns with them using carbon which it sounds Mm -hmm. like the other submersibles don't use the carbon material to create this whole structure. Um, Mm -hmm. And the experts were saying that the, essentially the pressure was going to be too much to keep the carbon structurally intact. Um, 
And so I wonder, you know, did they do testing on this? Is this, I mean, here it's not just their negligence or gross negligence as the operator. They're also the ones who manufactured it. So it's going to be a products liability case as well. And can you explain a little bit about what products liability is? Yeah, of course. So we have general negligence cases, right? Which is typically like running a red light or car accidents or somebody did something. Um, it's kind of a, an oopsie. It's not intentional. Um, so that's one theory of liability. The other, another theory is products liability, which is essentially when we sue the, either the person who designed, manufactured, um, it's a defect of some sort of the way that the product is either designed. Um, if it, is it manufactured, but not according to standards, is there a flaw in the manufacturing? Is there a flaw in the materials? Anything like that? Is there something that was done wrong during that process that then creates an injury for someone? Um, and so that's called products liability. And the law is a little bit different. It could be the product is manufactured, but it didn't have the right warning labels. That's a type of flaw in products liability. Um, it's designed, but it doesn't do what it's designed to do, right? There's some sort of, of problem with the way it was designed. That's a design defect. Um, you know, and so it, it's a way to hold companies responsible and it gets technical. There's lots of experts that are typically involved. There's some sort of engineer usually, if not multiple kinds of engineers. Um, and so here it sounds like they designed the, the Titan. Um, they somewhat manufactured it. My guess is it's, it's a, it's a bunch of component parts from different entities. And so, I mean, those entities could be on the hook if one of their products failed. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting and very technical lawsuit related to this. Mm -hmm. And to go back to that material that they had used and whether or not they did testing, that was something that I was wondering too. And even if they did the testing, which again, this is me not being any kind of expert, but just kind of thinking about it. If this is such, if they're saying that this carbon material was not strong enough to withstand that level of pressure, I would think that if it, okay, perhaps you take it down once you test it, it withstands the pressure okay. And then it comes back up. I would think that the next time you brought it down, that carbon is a little bit weaker than it was the time before, right? So then it's like, even if there were these tests that were conducted, does it get to a certain point where, you know, you've tested it four times and now it's so much weaker than it was to start with that it's inevitable that something would happen? That, that's kind of something I was thinking about. Same. I mean, it's something where It'll, it'll be interesting to see what their testing was. Was it that one time? Was it four times? And then, you know, here we are on the fifth. Is it something... I don't even know if you can test it on the surface. Like, is there a machine that would replicate being down 13,000 feet below the surface mm -hmm. and that pressure? That or that are, level. You, are you having to send it down, bring it back up, send it down? And I mean, I think it's something you would think a company would want to send it down multiple times to test, okay, when is there an issue? Yeah, um, almost like sending it down and kind of having one that you think may inevitably end up destroyed, yes, you know, like build a second out. one, right. see what can it take before it gets to that point and how can we prevent that from happening right. in the one is we're actually going to put people in. Is it at five? Is it at 10? Is it at a hundred? Where, where is it? Um, yeah. It'll also be interesting to see, are they running testing between, you know, you, you put it down the five times, are you running testing between each of those trips? Or are you just saying, hey, we still have a machine. Great. We're good. Yeah. It's safe. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see when all of that information starts coming out. Yeah. And do you think that this information will be something that the public will ever be able to get information on? Or is this something that you think will remain sealed? I think it's, I think at the rate the information is coming out right now, 
and how public it is, um, it seems like it will come out if there is any ever, there is ever any sort of trial, um, or anything like that. It's probably going to be public. Usually though, in product liability cases, there is a concern with manufacturers or, you know, different companies that have products that they're, um, their trademarked or copyrighted or whatever their proprietary information with how they're designing their product is going to get released. So when you have, you know, a car or helmets or whatever it is, a lot of the times there is a protective order in the lawsuit related to, um, making sure that their proprietary information, their design plans, their, their testing, all of that data is protected, um, and that their competitors don't get it here. I don't know how many competitors there really are. Yeah. And two, I don't know if there is going to be an overriding concern for public safety. Um, Mm -hmm. and with the way that this is blown up in the news, it's going to be interesting to see how much of it is shielded versus, you know, is a government agency going to start investigating this? Mm-hmm. And at that, that's a whole different, I don't think the privilege attaches there. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, and obviously this is all just kind of as legal yeah. nerds always thinking about this kind of stuff. Um, do you think that it's possible that there's any kind of criminal action at all related to this is that a possibility we're dealing with a company is that something that's possible it is possible so sometimes companies are criminally charged um the company itself or the very um high up people in the company the ceo stuff like that they can be charged um here obviously the ceo can't be charged since he has now passed away, he's one of the ones that was lost. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's going to depend how much other people in the company had responsibility or was it mostly the CEO? Um, but I mean, a company can be, can be brought up on criminal charges. That's something that's really like one of the first when I was first weird. learning about things like in the legal field. It's so interesting to me, like the the way companies work that like for legal purposes, that is a person. And it's so confusing to think like, okay, there's, there's the person, but then there's the person who also is a representative of the entity. And because that person did this, then the company is, it's not, we're not talking like every employee that's ever worked for this company could end up like arrested. Like that, that's, I think like what it kind of seems like when we talk about like criminal repercussions for something that a company does. But yeah, that's where it goes back to like the CEOs and like who actually had knowledge and who Mm -hmm. actually was the decision makers. But that's a very interesting part of law that I think a lot of people get really confused on. Yeah. It's, it's just a weird area, right. Of like you hear, I think like Chevron and some of those companies I think have been brought up on criminal charges before. Um, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's like big oil companies. Um, and so it, it's weird. It's a very mm-hmm. odd concept. Um, yeah. cause it's not like, okay, whatever this company, a company, a is like sentenced to like 20 years in prison. It doesn't work like that. Right. It's usually fines. Um, they try to prevent them from doing different. Um, it's like a slap on the wrist more, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it kind of it restricts their freedoms in the way that like a person going through the criminal um, justice system has can have their freedoms restricted. It can be similar for a company and the things that a company is able to do. Yeah. So, okay. I'm trying to search and find, cause it maybe was not Chevron. I'm trying to find some of the companies that have been charged. So essentially, at least when I Google it, um, it says for a corporation to be found guilty of a crime, every detail of the crime has to be committed by the corporation's agents. Um, and you have to prove that the corporation's agents, uh, knowingly engaged in each of the crimes elements. If more than one person acted illegally on behalf of the corporation. 
And when we're talking about agents, um, that can also be confusing because mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, like FBI agent. Um, agency in a legal sense means somebody that is authorized to act on behalf of the company or is otherwise acting on behalf of the company uh, when they do something. So if you are at work and your boss tells you to go deliver this package, when you are delivering that package and you fulfill that task, then you could potentially be acting as an agent of your boss when you do that thing so agency in a legal sense is when you're acting on behalf of the other thing and so the things that you do as an agent are then attributed to whoever it was that has agency over you yes exactly um so it is kind of a weird weird concept i am not finding any good examples an interesting thing about um, like entities, and when we say entities, we mean like corporations and businesses, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, with any law that involves entities, um, it's always fascinating to think like sometimes you may have like a company with only like one person in it. Like you could have like an LLC and it has like one person and then that person can be an individual and also acting on behalf of the company and like those things are separate so it can get really confusing and technical okay i figured it out okay it wasn't chevron it was bp uh, okay so they pled guilty to 11 counts of felony manslaughter um british airways have pled guilty for price fixing uh pfizer pled guilty to a felony violation of the food drug and cosmetic act for mix misbranding extra with the intent to defraud pg&e samsung has been pled guilty for price fixing sears was one count of fraud um volkswagen was three criminal felonies related to the emission scandal a couple years ago so those are some of the the big companies that have pled guilty to felonies which is just kind of that's a weird crazy concept. that is really interesting yeah. And it's interesting too to think like, did they consider that? And similarly here with OceanGate, what do these companies consider when they make these decisions? I mean, they can't just think this is okay, right? Like some of these companies that do these things that result in like huge lawsuits and criminal action, do you, do they consider that at the outset and think, well, there's no way that a lawsuit I mean, would cost so much that we can't continue? Like, it's interesting. I mean, I think. Like, if you're price fixing, you obviously know, right? What you're doing. Right. Or, like, fraud. Like, you kind of have to know on that one it's an intentional. Here, it kind of seems like the CEO, they thought that they were, were scientists and that they were being revolutionary yeah. and that they were bringing, um, you know, new advances into the world. Right. And they're mm-hmm. opening doors that that we don't normally send people down 13,000 feet below the surface. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was done intentionally, like price fixing or fraud. Yeah, or not tax, like maliciously. You know, tax fraud. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then and you also of... have them ignoring industry experts. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's kind of like. And that's really a challenge of the legal system is that you want to, on one hand, encourage innovation, but and you don't want right. to stifle that. But you also, like there are safety regulations in place for a reason. And perhaps there is, I mean, of course, there's a certain amount of risk associated with like new discoveries and and you know, exploration of things that we previously couldn't before. There's going to be a certain level of risk there. I think where the what's really fascinating in this case is like you had experts going down there, but you also had, quote unquote, like regular people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because you it's, don't want to say that, like, this isn't something they should have done. But also, right. did they was everyone on board able to fully understand the extent of the risk that they were taking? I mean, it's, you have to know, right? If you're, there's nobody else doing this. Nobody is taking a submarine down to 13,000 feet or a submersible. Um, And you know, once you're locked in, you cannot escape from the inside. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at a certain point, I mean, the waiver mentions you can die. 
I know most waivers do, right? You go to surgery and yeah. it says you can die. You go skiing, it says you can die. Like, so there's a lot of stuff that we, we do. We drive a car every day, knowing that mm-hmm. that could be, that's one of the biggest risks anybody is going to take is getting in a car and driving, you know, wherever you're going. So I think sometimes we see, okay, yeah, death. Like you don't really think when you're going to go skiing or hop in your car to drive to work that you're going to die that day. Mm-hmm. But when it's something like this and it's very risky, is there more of an understanding of, okay, something really, really bad could happen with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't you know. know. I mean, it's that's novel. Hard. Yeah. Because it's like, we don't want to say, because like, exactly like you said, like we make decisions every day about like what level of risk we're willing to accept, right? Like right. I'm not going to not drive ever because I still have to get places. Like that's a level of risk I'm going to take. And some people will be like, well, I'm willing to drive five miles over the speed limit, but like I wouldn't do 10 miles over the speed limit, right? Like everyone right. has like a risk tolerance and we don't want to say that like the legal system is going to tell you like how much risk you should be willing to accept because you're in control of your own life. But also it just it raises these questions like to what extent do you genuinely need to be not only informed because okay yeah a waiver says you die but like you said every waiver you've ever signed said that right but to what extent do you need to be i don't necessarily not like educated but kind of right i mean it does it does say that you it's not approved from mm-hmm. what we're hearing from people who have signed the waiver, at least seen it, it says that it is not approved. There is no industry standards. Um, you know, this has not been certified or approved by any sort of official body. So you kind of know that this is an experimental watercraft. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think as consumers, we are so used to everything that we do has undergone so much rigorous safety testing, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we go on a plane, we know that there is the um, FAA. We know that there is training schools. We know that that plane has safety standards. There's a safety checklist. There's stuff that has to be checked, right? Helicopter, Mm -hmm. same thing. Typically, all of the products we deal with cars, they undergo crash testing. Like there's a lot of stuff that is regulated behind the scenes. And so I think we are so used to, you know, pills that we take, ideally they've been tested, Mm -hmm. right? Unless you're in like an experiment, everything has been so regulated and, and there's been so many people, you know, checking the box saying that it passes. Like, I wonder if there's a false sense of security with this, of you're thinking, Mm -hmm. okay, these people have done it before. They've been down there so many times you know, obviously it's available that as a consumer, I can just buy a seat here. Mm -hmm. It must be safe. Yeah. Which I mean, even with, uh, there are some things like, you know, you go to the store and it's like warning, like products here, like can cause cancer or something like cookie dough is dangerous. Like there's a warning on freaking raw cookie dough. Yeah. So we're so used to warnings. Yeah. And even if, they're telling you that there's something dangerous. Like you said, there's this kind of sense of safety of, okay, even if they have identified something dangerous about this, the fact that I am able to obtain it, I can purchase it as a consumer. It's gone through something. So I'd imagine, and again, we obviously do not know what the people on board knew, what they were told or anything, but just kind of just thinking about it. I would assume even if it said that it hadn't been regulated by you know whatever industry i would assume somebody else did you know what i mean like as a consumer i would think okay the company had to have the company's obviously either done this enough or they have enough testing that they feel confident to sell these seats yes you're not thinking you are on a true experiment where you know has it been where we have one craft we've tested a hundred times and we know it's safe up to a hundred times? Or like, are you the guinea pig trying to figure out is it safe up to the however many times this thing has been up and down? Yeah. And I don't know how much they know. It sounds like there was one, one gentleman had purchased his ticket and put down a deposit. Um, Mm -hmm. And then once he started learning more about it, he actually gave up his seat because he wasn't willing to take the risk. Yeah. But then it's like, we don't know 
how did he obtain that information? Was that on right. his own? Was that something he was provided with? And then that kind of starts another conversation of like, what responsibility is owed to consumers to actually mm-hmm. provide them out front with that information in a digestible manner? Because that's the other thing. Who knows if they were provided this information? Um, but like, who's to say that it was understandable? And that's not to say that like, you know, these right. people would not have understood it. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of technical language that would be associated with this. And were they adequately informed about that? And did they have access to somebody who could explain the risk? Exactly. Because, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff, if we had mentioned it to you a week ago, you're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But right now, the market and all of our news has been essentially flooded with this information and flooded with experts who are talking about, you know, either industry standards or the engineering going behind the carbon, um, that it's a little bit more digestible for us. But who knows what information was given to, to the people who went on this ahead of time? Yeah. And that I mean, what's what this just makes me think about is how is this because like what you said this is becoming more digestible and I think for that reason there's a lot of people who, who are like oh my gosh like this is so egregious that this was even allowed right. to happen given the amount of knowledge and advance warning that they were provided with uh, you know Ocean Gate was provided with but I mean what is this going to do beyond this right like how is this going to change the future of tourism the future of you know these types of experiences i mean i think i i don't know because i mean we have people who can buy tickets to go into outer space now right yes. so there's rockets that that people are going on like william shatner went up on in one Um, so, I mean, you can just pay now to do these very extreme tourisms if you have a ton of money. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think we're going to start seeing, um, is I, a lot of the times lawsuits, the proceeds or, or the damages that are, have to be paid if the plaintiff wins or if they settle, it comes from insurance money. Mm-hmm. Like, I know, big surprise, we don't talk about it. We're not allowed to talk about it during a lawsuit. Um, mm-hmm. We can't tell the jury, you know, this person is going to be, we're, we're going after insurance proceeds, right? We're not stealing someone's house as a plaintiff's attorney, um, mm-hmm. at least not generally. Some do. Those plaintiff's attorneys who don't steal houses think that they're, they're scummy too for stealing someone's house. So mm-hmm. those of us who do this, it's, it's insurance proceeds. We're not trying to bankrupt a company. We are not trying to take somebody's house. It's insurance. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can insure this. That's a good question. That's a good point. Or how much money would it be to insure sending people down 13,000 feet below the surface. Like that is just a huge risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if an insurance company would issue in policy or if so, it's probably going to be so prohibitively expensive to purchase. Mm -hmm. Who knows if this company has it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is going to be, I don't think that insurance policy is going to be large enough to actually compensate these families. Yeah. Because, I mean, typically when you're you're looking at damages, you're looking at the person, the loss of income. Um, if it's a wrongful death, it's the loss of income to the family. And, I mean, these people are millionaires and billionaires. If they are, you know, actively working and are still there, the loss of income is going to be, it's, it's just going to be gigantic for each of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus the pain and suffering of this. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be, I don't think they're going to have adequate insurance. No. I mean, to, I couldn't imagine this out. the amount. I mean, even when you just take into consideration that you have five people, maybe only four that actually paid for a ticket and that each one was $250,000. Like just, just purely what they paid for the ticket is an insane amount of money. Well, even, okay, so the 19-year-old that was on board, Mm -hmm. his wage, his potential wage for his entire life is going to be huge. Even Mm -hmm. if he's not making a million dollars a year, it Mm -hmm. adds up. 
Yeah, because for anybody who's wondering that, like Lindsay was explaining, when we're calculating damages for something like this, where somebody has died, or um, even in a case where somebody is just no longer able to work anymore due to permanent disability, um, you look at what would this person have realistically made in their lifetime, and that gets factored into the amount of damages or money that you recover in that lawsuit. So that's a lot of money. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... It's going to add up because this kid, if he's 20, if he, he had probably 40, at least 40 more years of a work life. Mm-hmm. So it it's quite a bit of money. And do you think that punitive damages could come in at all into play here? Um, It could if there's a reckless disregard for human life. I think it's going to depend what kind of... of um, what kind of information comes out. So punitives come in when there's some sort of intentional act um, or a a conscious disregard for human life. Um, That's where you start getting malice Um, because it's not really fraud. I mean, there could be if, if there's, they find something where, you know, they're saying that this is completely 100% safe. It's been tested depending on how they are. They're advertising this to the people who are paying to go on this type of tourism. Um, Mm. I mean, really, the attorneys, whoever get this case, they're going to be looking at every possible, every possible, you know, cause of action that they can file. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, though, that I did see, which was interesting, is that there are certain limits, which I am not aware of this. I was not aware of this. I have not really researched it um, because we don't do shipwrecks. Or Mm -hmm. like submarine accidents. We just don't do that. Um, But there are certain laws that can impact what kind of damages are recoverable if it's considered like on the high sea. Interesting. And so so that's going to be another thing that complicates things. Which I think it was, I believe it's just you get lost wages, which still is going to be huge here. That's going to be the bulk of the damages anyway. Yeah. And does that, and I know that it hasn't been researched, but just kind of thinking, is the purpose of that, like, you know, you can recover less if it's on the high seas. Do you think any of that is rooted in this idea of like, you have kind of assumed the risk by engaging in some kind of activity like that? I don't know. Um, I really don't know what the limits are. Because it kind of the way that I kind of have been thinking about this and why I'm so fascinated about like how this will influence tourism moving forward is like, I think that when we talk about the knowledge of a tourist, right? Like mm-hmm. even just like a re- quote unquote, like regular tourist, right? Like you go from California to Hawaii, you're a tourist. Um, what there's a certain level of like, I don't want to say lack of knowledge, but kind of, right? Like you're there for a different purpose, right? The knowledge of a tourist is different than the knowledge of a scientist who has gone to school for many, many years and has undergone extensive training. The way that you engage in the conduct as a tourist versus as somebody who is trying to, um, you know, conduct an experiment or do research is very different. And so how does that go into play of your ability to even really assume any kind of risk? I, and like I what know. protections you are afforded. Right. I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I was sorry. I was looking at the death on the high seas act, <laughs> trying <laughs> to figure out if we could get some sort of justification. Yeah. So it's a federal law and it has to be more than three nautical miles from the shore. Um, and it, it is essentially, it's a limit. And it deals with, um, you can bring, I guess, a claim against the Siemens employer. So I think it's mostly meant, this law seems to be meant for people working out there. Okay. Not tourists diving to the Mm -hmm. Titanic. Which again, though, that's kind of one of those moments where the frustrating elements of law when some of the frustrating elements there's multiple um where sometimes it's a really rare situation and so it's a question of what law applies and someone's like hey here's this history of law that applies and it's about death at sea but yet it isn't completely spot on but it's quote unquote the best that we have 
or resolving right. the issue. And that creates challenges as well, because, you know, perhaps the intent behind that was never to apply to tourism. Right. And yet now we're in a place where the world looks a lot different than it did when some of these laws went into place. And yet those are the laws yep. that apply. Right. And that's kind of when you just start having to argue um, and get up to the court of appeal to try to change the law and say that this isn't the purpose behind the law and hope that the court agrees with you. Yeah. But okay, your question, it was essentially that people are traveling and they don't always assume the risk as a traveler, right? Because you don't Mm -hmm. know as you're going in these other areas. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same as depending on where you go. Different states have different caps on damages. There's even caps on, like, if a government entity, oddly, we know this, in Montana, if you sue a government (laughs) entity, there's a cap for $750,000 on your damages. In California, we don't have that cap. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are all these different laws that you're subjecting yourself to really Mm -hmm. when you go to Hawaii, like Hawaii has different laws. They have different speed laws. Everybody has all of it and you're not really ever made aware. Yeah. And that's not to say like, don't, you know, don't constantly be afraid. Don't like, Oh, before I travel to New York, let me just check what the cap on damages are. If this happens to be like (laughs) that, you don't need to like live in fear, but for purposes of just kind of you know, food for thought, right? But I mean, okay, how many people go in California and get medical care and never understand that there's a cap on their damages if their doctor screws up? Usually these are things that you would never know until it happened to you and then you end up Nobody understands Micra in California until something has happened to them or a loved one of theirs and they're trying to find an attorney and nobody's calling them back and they don't know why until somebody explains Mm -hmm. Micra to them. Yes. But I and mean, that's, that's when something... it's this moment of like, we have this system. Right. And it has not been updated. Oh, no. In a lot of ways. So, I mean, it's, it's just, there's caps. Like you don't think when you go to the doctor, like, oh, if they kill me, my family's only going to get, well, now 500,000. It's different. But last year it would have been 250. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, there's, there's other rules, but. We could go on about, we could do a whole episode case. on Micra consult an attorney who does medical malpractice in your state but um you know you don't think of those things Mm -hmm. and that's just now with this rise you know to bring it all together like with this rise in this new type of tourism now this is something people are gonna have to think about right like before when tourism was like i'm gonna go lay on the beach you're not thinking about the possibility of you know, some crazy legal thing happening. No. But now, if when your option is possibly lay on the beach or go to space, like right. there's, there's a lot to think about there. And also a lot to inform yourself on ahead of time to be aware of those things, right? Like to be that consumer that's like, hey, you know what? I have a weird feeling about this. I'm going to do my outside research and verify this is that this is going to be safe before I embark on something like this. Right. And there's a lot of things. um, Have you heard? I think I kind of told you about it. The Wakari um, eruption. Yes. Yes. I have heard briefly about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you told me. Yeah. There's a really good documentary on Netflix. And essentially it was a tourism gone wrong, but I think the difference is the tourism there with Wakari, um, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, I think the difference is it was a normal tour guide type thing. Mm -hmm. Like you go to Hawaii, right? And it's like, come snorkeling here, come diving here, go on this submarine here, here's helicopter rides. Like it was marketed like that. It's not marketed as extreme tourism. Like, Hey, we're going to take a shuttle to space. Um, but Wakari is a volcano that is in New Zealand. Um, it is an active volcano. It's in the, on its own Island. Um, and essentially one thing I didn't know is the Island is actually privately owned. So it's owned by a family. Um, and that family had ran tour guides 
to the um to the island since 1936. It was a day trip and they estimated that approximately 10,000 people would visit the island each year. And there had been major um or at least eruptions. So in the 80s it erupted, it erupted in 2006, and then again in 2012, 2013 and 2016. Um, and people would get to the island either by boat or by helicopter. So in 2019, um, there were in October and November of 2019, scientists started noticing that there was a lot more increased gas and steam and mud that were starting to be ejected from the crater. Hmm. And, um, there was an earthquake leading up to this, this horrible day, Um, and they essentially had put, they grade, right? The volcanoes as it's level one, level two. So it was placed on alert level two, which says that there's moderate unrest and there's a heightened risk of an eruption happening. Mm -hmm. Well, the tours didn't stop. And so that day they operated tours, um, and they took out, a bunch of people there were it was december 9th of 2019 and essentially the people were told that there was they should always be aware that there is obviously a risk of an eruption because you are going to an active volcano but that white island tours follows a comprehensive safety plan which determines our activities on the island at the various levels so on december 9th um there were 47 people on Wakari and um, some of them came by helicopter some of them came by boat and around two o'clock there were two explosions and if you watch the documentary it's it's the story of the survivors of the families of people who had worked on the island like the tour guides family um and it's really not that far off the coast of New Zealand, but essentially it, these eruptions put boiling ash and vapor, um, up to three kilometers into the sky. So it was not a small eruption by any means. Mm-hmm. And people just essentially the tour guides just told people to run. And so they were trying to get back to the boat, um, and, some of them that got covered in ash. There's hor- horrific stories of whole families where only one person survived out of like a family of four. And they pretty much had to leave their loved ones because they just needed to get off the island and their loved ones had passed. And so they only were able to rescue 23 people off the island. Um, and a lot of people were suffering very, very severe burns. Um, and so they were able to get people onto the boats and start the drive, the, the trip back to the mainland. Um, and the worst part was the, the first responders and the captains who were saying, you know, we need help. We need to get helicopters. There's still people alive on the island because they weren't able to get everybody off. And the local official um, first responders deemed it too dangerous. And so they wouldn't fly helicopters to the island because it was still erupting and still had the potential to erupt. And it was a bunch of local pilots who took it upon themselves to start flying the rescue missions. And like one guy, and you hear from these uh, people on the Netflix documentary and, you know, one guy's job was just to circle the volcano to try to figure out, is it going to erupt again? Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's this horrific story turned into just everybody trying to help each other. Um, and a bunch of people ended up dying that day on Wakari. They have not started running tours since. But an interesting part of this is there are people facing criminal charges related to those tours. And the trial is supposed to start uh, next month. So maybe we'll have to do an episode on that. Stay tuned. I know. So like we were, yeah, we were going to do a full episode and then we're like, well, maybe we should just wait until the criminal case is actually over. And then, you know, we can do the full story, talk about some of the actual people by names, give you more information Mm -hmm. about all of the numbers. Um, 
Because, I mean, it is an important story. And there's, I don't think the people on that tour thought, you know, that the volcano was actually going to explode because you expect, you, you don't expect an organized tour group to take you somewhere unsafe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So hopefully we'll be able, we'll, we will do an episode on that. And hopefully if there, I mean, if there is any lawsuits or if there's a big update in regards to the Titan submersible, we will update you on that as well, whether it be in a subsequent episode or on social media. So stay tuned for that. But for today, we just kind of wanted to start this conversation so that as these conversations are happening, you can also kind of provide input and think about some of these things. Yeah. So, um, we are glad that you are tuning in. We can't believe we're at official episode 20. It's really, I think like 24 or 25 now. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you guys for sticking with us. Um, you can like follow and share us. It always helps leave us reviews wherever you get your podcasts. I think Apple podcasts and Spotify will let you do that. Um, other than that, you can find us on Facebook at a place in the courtroom. You can find us on Instagram at a place in the courtroom. Uh, you can find us at our website at www.aplaceinthecourtroompodcast.com. You can also email us at a place in the courtroom at gmail.com. Um, our TikTok is, I think, a place in the courtroom. Yes. I think. Yes. It is. yes. Uh, but other than that, we hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. And we will talk to you next week. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye.